So chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want you to imagine the scene. It's Christmas Eve. A young boy is staring out of the window. He's been staring out of the window for several hours now. His parents have tried to drag him away. Why don't you read a book? Why don't we go out to the park? Why don't you play with your Lego? But no, he doesn't want to move at all. He doesn't want to miss it. He's not waiting for Father Christmas. It's even better than that. Several weeks ago, he entered a competition to win a whole sack of amazing prizes. Toys, games, new TV, a bike, latest games console. He knows the prize is going to be delivered on Christmas Eve. And so he watches and he waits. As the sun starts to disappear from the sky, he gets more desperate, more despondent. When are they going to come? When will the prize arrive? They said it was going to arrive on Christmas Eve. Eventually, he goes to bed, dismayed, dejected, devastated. Christmas is ruined. The very thing that I'd put my, I mean, the very thing that he'd put his hope in <laughs> had been snatched away. And now there was nothing left. Well, some people view uh, Christmas uh, as a season of hope and excitement, as a season of longing and expectation, a season of looking forward to good things, a ray of light in the cold, dark winter. They cannot wait for the day to arrive. But for others, it's a time of disappointment, sadness, frustration. Christmas never quite lives up to all the expectations and they cannot wait for it to be over. Others are just waiting, uh, looking forward to a rest, a break from all the tiredness and busyness of life. So how do we get ready for Christmas? How do we get our hopes and expectations right? How do we remind ourselves that there's a hope and joy that Father Christmas just cannot deliver? Over the next four weeks... We're going to be looking at four classic Christmas readings that get us thinking about the true nature of hope to, get, to help us to look forward 
and help us to get properly ready for Christmas and see what it's really all about. So let's pray together as we look at this wonderfully deep and rich passage from Isaiah. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us and that you've spoken to us here through the prophet Isaiah, that your Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words, these things that he couldn't possibly have seen, these things that he couldn't possibly have known. And yet he spoke. He wrote these words of great hope, a great glory, a great light. And Lord, please help us this morning to understand them. Please help us to know what they mean. Please help us to see what they're pointing us towards. Amen. Well, in 2016, four superhero movies took a combined total of 3.97 billion at the global box office. Now, put that in context, these four films earned more money than 33 countries did in the whole of 2015. Next year, uh, there's scheduled to be at least seven, uh, 11 new superhero movies to be released. Why is there such uh, an appetite for these uh, films, these kind of films and these characters? I mean, aside from the obvious that, you know, superheroes appeal to that, you know, the fantasy of dressing up in a cape, you know, a mask and underpants on the outside, running around, jumping around, blowing things up, getting to do lots of cool stuff. In reality, closest most people get to being a superhero is getting into some lycra and getting on a road bike. But is there something more to it than this? Could there be something deeper? This great appetite for superheroes is surely born out of a, a, a great desire for someone who can put the world right. We long for someone who is both powerful and good. We long for someone who will use their strength to protect the weak. Someone who is powerful enough to defeat the evil in our world. But it's not just superheroes who reflect this desire. Every kind of literature, every culture has its heroic figures. For the ancient Greeks, it was the heroes of their mythology. Hercules, Theseus, Perseus and Homer, who later starred in The Simpsons. In the Middle Ages, it was the legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, or Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Even classic romantic literature isn't immune. If you don't believe me, I have two words for you. Mr. Darcy. Doesn't he swoop in to rescue Lizzie Bennet and her family from social disgrace? like an 18th century superhero in a frilly shirt and a top hat. The fact that he has a massive house and lots of money doesn't seem to hurt either. But all of these characters are deep expressions of that inner desire for a better world, an expression of the hope and desire we have for an end to the pain, the suffering, oppression, injustice and evil. It's a natural response, isn't it? When we look around our world, and see what it's like. How do we make sense of a world in which groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda can roam around committing mass murder of anyone who doesn't measure up to their standard? 
How do we respond when a group of schoolgirls can be kidnapped and made to completely disappear by Boko Haram? What do we think when a couple in our very own city can keep a 10-year-old orphan, a deaf girl from Pakistan, enslaved in their cellar for nine years to have her repeatedly raped and abused and then have the nerve to claim that the cost of her food and lodging should be deducted from the compensation that she was awarded by a court. How do we live in a world where every single day there's racism, bullying, manipulation, corruption, injustice, poverty, hostility, and conflict? How do we stop ourselves slipping into complete despair? For many, the answer is hope. A desire that somehow, and at some point, things will get better. Well, here in Isaiah chapter 9, we get a very clear and tangible hope. It's a hope that's centered on a real-life historical person, not the imaginary product of a comic book writer. So let's have another look at that section that Maxim read for us earlier. If you want to turn back to it, it's page uh, 694 of the English Bibles and page 1053 of the Chinese Bibles. And we're going to see three things. We see the people who walk in darkness. We see the light that has dawned, all because of the child who is given. The people who walk in darkness, the light that has dawned, all because of the child who is given. So superhero stories start uh, with a bad situation, don't they? Some kind of uh, supervillain with suitably mad hair uh, and a net- or a network of criminal gangs with some kind of cliched name terrorizing ordinary people and bringing that kind of fear and darkness. And that's the situation we see in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9. Just look at verses 1 and 2 there. People are in gloom, in distress. People are walking in darkness. They're living in the land of deep darkness. As someone who's very clumsy, I'm well capable of walking into things in broad daylight. So the idea of walking around in complete darkness is a pretty scary one. It's a picture of utter desperation, isn't it? There's a deep helplessness to it. You can't see where you're going. You can't even make out where the potential dangers lie. It's a picture of people fumbling around with no way out and nothing to guide them. It's a picture of danger and threat. So how did the people walking in darkness arrive there? Where did this darkness come from? Well, for the answer, we need some selected highlights from the book of Isaiah so far with a bit of history thrown in for good measure. So Isaiah uh, lived through uh, the reign of four of the kings of Judah, Uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you want to read up on the history of the time, uh, you can check out 2 Kings, chapters 15 to 20, or 2 Chronicles, chapters 26 to 32. Uh, And at this time, the people of God have actually split into two separate kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Isaiah dealt mostly with the kings of Judah, but he's always got one eye on what's going on in the north. And the first five chapters of Isaiah involve 
a lot of God calling out his people for a variety of things. In chapter 1, we see uh, they've rebelled against him. They're going through the religious motions, but their heart is not really in it. They've abandoned justice. They've not cared for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. In chapter 2, we learn that they've worshipped idols. They've trusted in wealth or military might. In chapter 3, the Lord says that they've chased after inadequate leaders. There's a really random moment where people are so desperate for a leader, they say to someone, you have a cloak, you be our leader. Maybe they thought he was some kind of superhero. In chapter 5, we see they've practiced oppression and violence. It's a picture of people who are putting their trust in anything or anyone that is not the Lord God himself. At the end of chapter 2, God warns his people. He says, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. And in contrast, we see in chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the glory, the majesty, the power, the holiness of God himself. God is shown as the one exalted on the throne, the one who truly reigns over the earth. This almighty Lord is the one that God's people should be trusting in, not the false idols, not the inadequate leaders, not in wealth or military strength. And then we come to Isaiah chapter 7. And King Ahaz, the king of Judah at the time, is presented with a clear choice. See, the the superpower of the day, the Assyrian Empire, was on a program of aggressive expansion. Uh, The king of Israel had kind of formed a a northern coalition uh, to resist the Assyrians. And now Israel were threatening to attack and destroy Judah, the southern kingdom, if they didn't join uh, this coalition. The trouble is, if King Ahaz did join the coalition, coalition even, uh, Judah would be under an even greater threat from Assyria. But Isaiah advises another solution. He tells King Ahaz to trust the Lord Almighty, the one who rules over Israel, over Assyria, over everyone else. Sadly, Ahaz refuses the advice, and he goes and he makes an alliance with Assyria. And so God tells Ahaz, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Assyria is going to come and destroy Israel and the others. And Judah is going to be next in their sights. Their powerful ally it's actually going to threaten to destroy them too. And the rest of chapter 7 and 8 are an extended warning of judgment, of destruction, and ever-increasing darkness at the hands of the Assyrians. Chapter 8 ends with the words, uh, these words about the people who, despite everything that has happened to them, they still are refusing to turn to the Lord and trust in him. He says this, distressed and hungry, They will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and, looking upwards, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. It's a really grim picture. A picture of destruction and desolation with no way out. And it's a theme that actually continued for the people of Judah. 
The Assyrian threat eventually gave way to the Babylonians who came and conquered Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem and carried people off into exile. Though some people managed to return to the land, they were still under the rule of another empire. And by the time we've reached the New Testament era, God's people are now living under yet another mighty empire, that of the Romans. See, the darkness described here continued from the time of Isaiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. And all because the people of God refused to trust him. This is a tragic picture of people who've entered into a darkness that they've chosen. They chose to reject God's goodness, his provision and his peace, his justice and his might, and enter into this darkness. And so darkness is not that different to that of the present world. When we look around us and we see the terrorism and murder, the abuse, the exploitation, the poverty, the racism, the bullying, the self-promotion, at times we look around and it feels like we can only see distress and gloom. Our world appears engulfed in the utter darkness that we see described right here. And so we can imagine the hope that these wonderful words in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 must have brought to those who first heard them. Because in the midst of distress and despair, God speaks hope. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the gloom, God shines a light. We see that the light has dawned. The light that has dawned. The light has begun. Superheroes always have their origin story. It's where we learn um, who they are and where they come from. Whether it's a wealthy orphan or a powerful alien, or a guy with a big magic hammer. We also learn how they got their powers. If you believe the comic book world, uh, you think that falling into a vat of radioactive chemicals would actually do wonders for you. But um, I reckon the scientific community would still strongly advise against it. We learn what inspired them. What inspired them to run around in spandex, underpants, and a cape while battling evil megalomaniacs. But ultimately, what the origin story does is it's a promise of an end to the darkness. Because the origin story says that someone is on the way. The origin story is the beginning of the hope that someone will be able to stand strong and firm against the darkness. And this is what we see in Isaiah chapter 9. This is the original origin story. It tells us about the coming light, the hope that is on the way. Just look at verse 1 there. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. At the end of Isaiah 8, there was nothing but distress, doom, and darkness. And chapter 9 immediately begins, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. But look at where this hope comes from. See, Zebulun and Naphtali were the uh, regions around uh, and to the west of the Sea of Galilee. 
And these were the very first areas that were conquered by the Assyrians when they attacked and destroyed Israel. So the very first area where the darkness fell is the area in which the light dawns. Matthew's Gospel picks up on this in chapter 4. because He says the first areas that Jesus goes to preach are the areas of Zebulun and Naphtali. The light is going to dawn in the very place where the darkness first came. And we see that it's a great light that leads to great joy. This is really significant because throughout the history of God's people, it's fair to say that God bringing about rescue and salvation is not always followed by the best reaction. God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. The people responded by asking if they could go back to slavery. And then by trying to replace God with a cow made out of unwanted jewellery. God provided his people with an amazing promised land. The people responded by turning against him again and again. God ruled faithfully over his own special people. The people responded by asking for a mere human king so they could be like everyone else. But here the promise is for a light that's properly understood. In verse 2, the light is not only dawned, but the people in darkness have actually seen it. They've recognized it for what it is. And this leads them into genuine joy. In verse 3, the Lord, uh, it says the Lord has increased their joy. But the people also respond rightly. They rejoice. Finally, what God is doing is met with the right response from the people. There's no longer the, the whining and moaning. The, Maybe I like the darkness. Mm. This is really hopeful. The people walking in darkness have seen the light that's dawned. They seem to be rightly responding with joy. Isaiah gives us some more hints about the nature of the light that's dawned in three descriptions of, the, uh, of this rejoicing. Firstly, uh, there's an enlarging of the nation. Again, this was uh, written to a kingdom that had been bitterly divided for hundreds of years. This is definitely a cause for rejoicing. It's a hint at a national unity, maybe a, a return to the good times under King David or Solomon. Secondly, it's also like the kind of joy you see in the face of provision and plenty. Let's look at verse 3. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. This is one of those areas where I think we uh, struggle to completely relate to the world of the Bible. For most of us, if we want food, we just pop to, out to Aldi or Tesco or the Curry Mile. But just imagine if when you went there, you didn't know if they would actually have any food to eat. In Bible times, if there was no harvest, there was no food. This isn't rejoicing, uh, kind of giving thanks to God for yet another plentiful meal. This is rejoicing mixed with massive relief and thankfulness because God has provided, God has sustained your life. And thirdly, it's a rejoicing as a great victory. The end of verse 3, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, 
the rod of their oppressor. See, this picks up both on the defeat of the Midianites that God brings in Judges chapter 7, as well as the language used of Israel's slavery in Egypt. Isaiah gives a picture of complete deliverance. The enemy is defeated. The oppressor is shattered. The burden is lifted from their shoulders. And this is not just some temporary relief. Isaiah is talking about something permanent. Strictly speaking, verse 5 should start with a because or a for. For every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. See, the lifting of the oppression in verse 4 happens because the very equipment of warfare itself will be destroyed. This echoes the words in Isaiah chapter 2. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There will be no more oppression, no slavery, no darkness, because the equipment itself is thrown into the fire. The weapons that once destroyed become means to cultivate, grow, and sustain life. Now, this is not a small light. It's not something that just provides some relief against the darkness, like the moon and the stars, or Manchester streetlights that may or may not be working. This is the rising of the sun. This is the dawn. Darkness, by definition, is an absence of light. When the dawn comes, the darkness simply disappears. And here is a complete, it's a permanent end to the darkness. So how is this going to come about? The light has dawned because of the child who is given. The light has dawned because of the child who is given. Now at this point we we kind of expect to see a a strident figure striking a a defiantly bold pose, you know, rippling muscles, cape billowing heroically in the wind, utility belt stocked with all the necessary gadgets. But just look at verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The great superhero, the one who's going to usher in this eternal light, the one who's going to win a great victory and put an end to oppression and conflict, is a child. I don't know if there are any uh, superhero characters who are little children, but if not, I'm going to lay claim right now and here to all rights on the character Super Baby. God's amazing rescue plan is going to come about through the giving of a child, the birth of a son. You can almost hear Isaiah's first listeners wondering who this mighty warrior is going to be. And they get to verse 6, for to us a child is born. Wait, what did he say? A child. Then again, God is in the habit of using surprising means of rescuing his people. He rescued his people from Egypt using a combination of amphibians, extreme weather, a hasty roast lamb dinner, and some rather unusual exterior decorating. He rescued his people from the vastly superior Midianite army using just torches, jars, and trumpets. This light, this hope, 
This promise comes about because a child is born, a son is given. This is no ordinary child. His child is going to bear an awesome responsibility. The government will be on his shoulders. See, this child is not only going to take away the burdensome yoke of oppression in verse 4, he's also going to take on all the responsibility of government. For the people in darkness, he removes the bar across their shoulders, and he will take on his shoulders the responsibility of a righteous, just, and perfect kingdom. So who is this child? Verse 6 gives us four different names or characteristics of what this child is going to be. First of all, he's going to be, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. A word translated wonderful here is more literally translated wonder. So the name is actually Wonder Counselor. It's another superhero name. Super Baby and Wonder Counselor. And the word for wonder also has kind of overtones of supernatural. He's a superhero name with superhero powers. This child is going to be a leader who is infinitely wise. He's able to guide people in the right way. We've already seen what a disaster King Ahaz caused by unwise decisions and bad leadership. He almost laid Judah wide open to the Assyrians to come and destroy them. At the moment, a lot of people are are nervous about what kind of president Donald Trump is going to be. His comments and ways of handling situations don't give a lot of confidence that he's going to be a wise and discerning leader. Not so here in Isaiah. This new ruler appears to have the very wisdom and understanding of God himself. Secondly, he's going to be called Mighty God. Uh, Some people uh, suggest that this could be an honorary title for the king, but it it wasn't a title that was used for either the kings of Israel or Judah. And in the next chapter, Isaiah 10, he again uses this phrase, mighty God, and he's definitely talking about God, the Lord God himself there. This child will be God himself. The problem early was King Ahaz was more worried about the mere humans around him. But with this mighty God as their ruler, God's people would no longer need to fear the surrounding nations because this king reigns over all the other kings. Thirdly, he's going to be called Everlasting Father. This uh, gives a sense of a ruler who loves and cares for his people. God himself is is presented, isn't he, as as a perfect father. Likewise, this king is going to be like a perfect father in his rule. He will care for the needy. He will be compassionate. He will discipline and correct those that he loves. Not like so many human leaders through history whose rule has been about getting whatever they can for themselves. This king who will give generously of himself uh, is a king who will give generously of himself for the benefit of his people. And fourthly, he's the prince of peace. The word here, peace, is not just kind of peace of quiet we think of, or peace uh, as the absence of war. Um, This peace is shalom. Uh, It means completeness. It means wholeness. This is a, a picture of being perfectly right and well at every possible level. 
your health, your bank balance, your relationships, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. See, the Prince of Peace is going to be the ultimate rounded individual. He's a uh, figure who's himself perfectly complete. And this Prince of Peace brings the same kind of peace to those living under his rule. And just when it seems like it can't get any better, it does. In verse 7, we see his kingdom is permanent. It's an eternal kingdom. There's going to be no end to the greatness of this kingdom, either in terms of time or territory. It's going to spread across the entire world. It's going to spread across the whole of history. There's going to be no need or desire for Brexit from the peace and justice of this kingdom. There's going to be no person elected to replace the Prince of Peace. Because this Prince is the great eternal King who was promised to David. His kingdom will be established and upheld. It will be completely stable and secure. It will be perfectly just and righteous. No scandals, no corruption, no bribery or injustice, no oppression or exploitation, no trafficking, no terrorism, no abuse, no domestic violence, no homelessness, no hunger, no loneliness, no bullying, no murder, no war, no genocide. And this will be forever and ever and ever. With a wonderful counselor as king, We no longer need to worry if those in power know what they're doing. With a mighty God as king, we no longer need to worry about those who seem more powerful than us. With the everlasting Father as king, we no longer need to worry about whether those in control truly care about us or what happens next. With the Prince of Peace as king, we no longer need to worry about being good enough. He is the one who gives us peace and makes us complete. So the question for us this morning, Grace Church, do we want this? Do we want this light? Do we want to be part of this kingdom? Are we hungry for a world that is free of hurt and pain? Do we long to be safe, secure, and totally content? Do we desire to live in a world where there's no worry about where the next meal is coming from? We want the perfect wisdom, the strength, the compassion and peace of this promised eternal king. See, this is the true promise of Christmas. And it's a bold one. It's a promise that goes way beyond presents, crazy jumpers, good food, time with family and friends, or just a decent break. The true promise of Christmas is of a world, a kingdom, far beyond our hope or imagination. An eternal kingdom of light, peace, justice, and joy. The true promise of Christmas is one that lasts long after the batteries have been forcibly removed. It's a promise far greater than whatever finite thing we've set our hearts on this year. The true promise of Christmas is not a jolly old man who gives you stuff but a glorious king and saviour who came to destroy the darkness once and for all. It's the promise of the great hero 
that our world yearns and hungers for. The mighty ruler who can destroy evil, who can provide for us, who can bring us inner peace and harmony, who can restore us to be the people that we are meant to be. The Lord who welcomes us to himself, who gives us himself, who forgives us and offers us peace with him. Isn't this what we all actually want? So whether you love or hate Christmas and everything that goes with it, all of us are going to be somewhere on that scale from the kind of wishing it was Christmas every day through to being a bit of a Scrooge. But however we feel about Christmas, our reaction shows that deep down we really long for the hope and joy that Isaiah is promising right here. If you really love all of the lights, the music, the decorations, the food, the parties, the presents, the friends and family, the fun of Christmas, you throw yourself in with great enthusiasm. It shows that you really want to find uh, joy and hope in something. You really want something to look forward to. And if you hate all of the commercialization, the sums of money that's spent on tacky presents that no one needs, if you think it's all a load of hype, a bunch of false hope that only ends in disappointment, well, it just shows that you really want a far greater hope and joy than the Christmas celebrations can ever provide. Christmas can never live up to your expectations because you're expecting, you're hoping for so much more. Either way, it reveals in us a deep longing for a much greater hope and joy. We either look for that hope and joy in Christmas or we recognize that one day of the year cannot satisfy the deep joy and hope that we truly desire. But the true promise of Christmas is actually what we all want. We want an end to the darkness. We want this child. We want this son. We want this king and this great kingdom. We want exactly what Isaiah promises here. We want the light to dawn. So in the middle of all the preparations and expectations is Christmas. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an amazing opportunity to witness to the true hope of Christmas. If you're someone who loves Christmas, then um, you can enjoy everything as a good gift from God. And you can delight and celebrate in the fact that there's an even better hope and joy found in Jesus Christ. And if you hate Christmas time, we can enjoy the fact that there's a greater hope, a deeper joy to be found than the shallow versions offered in Christmas celebrations. And if you're just looking forward to a break, a rest, some time off, you can delight in the small taste of that promise of eternal peace and rest in Jesus' perfect kingdom. And if we are followers of Jesus, then do our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors see that our hope and our joy is found in Jesus Christ far more than it's found in presents or food or time off? Are we more bothered about getting the perfect present for someone than we are with sharing Christ with them? Are we more bothered about getting everything ready for Christmas than we are about inviting people to the carol service? whether we want Christmas to be over or we want it to go on forever, do those around us see that ultimately our hope and our joy is found not in one day of the year, but in the one who is the eternal king, 
the one who gave up everything, the one who gave us himself as a light in the darkness. If you're someone here who's looking into the claims of the Christian faith, can I encourage you to keep coming back over the next few weeks? We really believe that Jesus is the light that you are looking for. He is the light in the darkness. He is the hope that you hunger and yearn for. This Christmas will be a wonderful time for you to receive him as your king and saviour. But how can we be certain? How do we know? How do we know that this is a hope in which we can trust? Look at the end of verse 7 with me. It is the zeal of the Lord Almighty that will accomplish this. The zeal, the intense desire, the passion, the dedication, the sheer force of will of the most powerful being in the entire universe. The mighty Lord God is going to bring this about. This is not just a whim. This is not a a fanciful personal project that gets abandoned when it gets too hard. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It is going to happen. And we know this because the wonderful counsellor bore another bar across his shoulders. Our mighty God was forced to carry a wooden cross to a place covered in deep darkness. The everlasting Father was nailed to the cross and left to die. The perfectly whole Prince of Peace was beaten and broken. And in his dying breath, he cried, It is accomplished. The zeal of the Lord Almighty accomplished an end to the darkness, the dawning of the light. The son who was given gave himself up to death. He took on himself all of our darkness and wickedness, all of our rejection of the God who made us, all of the ways and times that we've refused to trust our Heavenly Father, trusting instead in the things that he's made. All of our injustice against God and against others, all of that darkness fell on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And in his death, Christ completely shattered that darkness. He destroyed the burden of sin and shame that weighs us down. He accomplished our rescue. He accomplished victory. He accomplished the dawning of a great light. This is what we really want. We want the light to dawn. We want an end to the darkness. But we don't want to be destroyed. The true promise of Christmas is that one has come who can destroy the darkness without destroying those who caused it. Jesus Christ was given to us. He is the light of the world who stepped down into our darkness. So this Christmas, let's remember that for the people walking in darkness, a great light has dawned because of the child who is given. Let's pray together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. 
And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Lord God, we thank you that you have promised this. And not only promised this, but you have accomplished this through Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us this Christmas. Please help our gaze not to be taken with, with lights and presents and, the, uh, and all the things that go on around. But ultimately on you. That you will be the light in the darkness. You will be our hope and our joy this Christmas time. Amen.